Chapter Ten of Garibaldi and the Making of Italy by George Macaulay Trevelyan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Cavour invades the Papal States with the army of Piedmont. Sulle dentate scilente vete salta e comisco tuona la valanga egiaci imani rotolando per le selve crociante mata e silenzi del fuso azoro esci no sole l'aquila e distende in tardi rota digradante il nero volo solene salve pimonte a te con melodia mesta da lungi risonte come gli epica canti de tuo popol bravo sendono i fiumi sendono piene rapidi gigliarde come i tui centro battle e a valle cercan le desta a rishonar de gloria villa e sidati carducci Piemont. over the glittering jagged summit leaps the chamois sounds the avalanche off the cruel ice beds rolling through crashing forests out from the silence out from the encircling blue floats in the sun the eagle and extends in circles slowly earthward borne his dark and solemn flight hail piedmont hail to thee with melody sad from afar resounding like the songs the heroic songs of thine own mountaineers thy rivers fall down fall thy rivers rushing rapid full like thy battalions in the plain below seeking the hamlets and the towns astir with thoughts of glory the states of the church spreading across the peninsula from sea to sea opposed to a geographical veto to the union of italy which garibaldi's successes in the south had brought into the region of practical politics at the moment of his entry into naples the whole of central italy from ancona to civita vecchia from perugia to terracina was still in the most literal sense subject to priestly rule in the papal territories priests were legislators and the administrators not like william of wycombe or wolseley lending their abilities to the state at the invitation of the lay power but acting in their own divine right both in theory and in practice priests were the sole judges of what might be punished said or done by the millions of laymen who chanced to be subjects of the pope there was no longer as in eighteen forty eight any attempt at reform from within or concession to the laity we are advised to make reforms said pio nono to odo russell the british resident at rome is it not understood that those very reforms which would consist in giving this country a government of laymen would make it cease to exist it is called the states of the church and that is what it must remain while many of the parish priests as soon afterwards appeared shared the desire of their flocks to be ruled by the king of italy instead of by the pope the roman curia was implacable at no period was the spirit of priestly intolerance and interference exercised with greater impolicy than in these years and months when the threatening theocracy had its last chance of making terms with the modern world up to the very day of reckoning the hierarchy seemed to find a pleasure in reminding every layman in central italy that he had belonged to an enslaved class and must submit to any humiliation or injustice that the church was pleased to impose on august twenty second eighteen sixty 
odo russell sent home to lord john an official dispatch narrating the characteristic incident of popple rule a respected tradesman of civita vecchia died some days since and five young men friends of the deceased wishing to show the respect and affection they bore towards him applied to the ecclesiastical authority for permission to carry his coffin themselves instead of allowing it to be carried by the religious confraternity on whom funeral functions usually devolve the request was granted at civita vecchia but it appears not approved in rome for after four days the young men were arrested in the night at their own houses by papal gendarmes and conveyed to prison and the next day they were sent to the state prisons of soriano beyond viterbo where they will in all probability remain for some months and then be released without trial the charge brought against them is interference with ecclesiastical customs and privileges this system of government was perpetuated no longer by the submissiveness of the pope's subjects but by the presence of foreign armies the troops of napoleon the third held down rome and the patrimony of san peter an army of austrians in the pay of pionano maintained order in umbria and the marches in the summer of eighteen fifty nine these eastern provinces had nominally been evacuated by austria but the very same officers and men who had composed the former garrison had been encouraged by the government of vienna to go back six thousand strong and enroll themselves in the papal service thus the newly liberated romagna was threatened from the south by the papal forces of which these austrians were the main strength and from the north by the official army of austria in the venetian territory cavour had no time to lose he must overwhelm the pope's army in umbria and the marches and make italy one by joining hands with garibaldi in naples if he delayed it it was clear that austria as soon as she had recuperated her strength after her losses in the war of eighteen fifty nine would reconquer north italy in alliance with the pope cavour well aware of the necessity for invading the papal states knew that the indispensable condition of success in an enterprise so repugnant to the interests of austria was the passive consent of the ruler of france the french emperor had no good will for the austrians who were maintaining the pope's temporal power on the eastern seaboard of italy although he still found himself compelled to do similar police work in the west napoleon's throne depended upon the support of the pope's followers in france and the pope's temporal power in rome depended on napoleon's bayonets so each must perforce accommodate the other but the chain of their mutual dependence was galling and only made them hate one another the more napoleon half a liberal and wholly a man of the modern world detested the obscurantist government of which he was the unwilling protector while the pope and the curia after the franco-austrian war of eighteen fifty nine recollected that the third napoleon was the nephew of the first and thenceforward chose to regard him as the embodiment of the european revolution they entertained high hopes of a bourbon restoration in france and began to talk of the present occupant of the tuileries in the language which cardinals and papal secretaries now sleeping in silent rome cloisters had used in their day about queen elizabeth and henry of navarre the french ambassador reported with amused indignation that according to his holiness irish chamberlain napoleon the third was in league with the devil and often consulted him on political affairs 
Pio Nono considered that Apollyon had deprived him of the Romagna by the war of 1859, and that he was preparing at the earliest opportunity to rob him of Umbria and the marches. Caramillo Russell, he said in his mild and benevolent voice to the British resident, you are mistaken if you take the present crisis in Italy for a national one. What is being done now will be undone again in time. Piedmont is an instrument in the hands of the Emperor Napoleon, who thinks it his duty to carry out the idea of his uncle. What his ultimate objects are, I know not, but whatever he establishes will end with him as the kingdom of his uncle ended with the empire. The Italians are not bad people, but they are easily led astray by foreign agents, who revolutionize the country for their own wicked purposes. When they have suffered more, they will repent and return to us. Misled by the false historical analogy of a bygone period, when France had imposed the revolutionary system on Italy from without, the Pope and his advisers persuaded themselves that no genuine national movement existed in the peninsula, and looked forward to another 1815, another fall of Napoleon, and another restoration of the old Italian world. Even so shrewd a man as Cardinal Antonelli, who shared but few of the illusions of his rivals round the papal throne, declared that he was waiting for the 1815 of the Second French Empire, after which the Pope would enjoy his own again in the Romagna and elsewhere. The Second French Empire has indeed since then met with its Waterloo, but it is not the Pope or the ancient regime that has risen on its ruins. The Pope, having quarreled with his bread and butter in the shape of Napoleon's protection, was easily persuaded in the early months of 1860 to entrust his fortunes to the Belgian fanatic de Merode, whose grand design it was to enlist an army of crusaders gathered from all parts of Europe which should be strong enough to defend the papal territories, and also enable the Holy Father to dispense with the degrading patronage of the French usurper. Cardinal Antonelli, indeed, who saw what was possible in this life as clearly as any other worldling in Europe, argued that a mistake was being made in trying to turn the Holy See into a military power, but his warnings were drowned in the clamorous joy of the church militant over the energy and zeal of his Belgian rival. Anatelli was forced to bide his time and allow the fatal experiment to be tried. The hour belonged to Monsignor de Marode, the priest and war minister. All through the spring and summer of 1860, the quiet piazza of old Papal Rome resounded with clash and tramp of regiments under arms and the cries of officers drilling recruits in all the languages of Catholic Europe, while the French garrison, no longer the heroes of the sacristy, stared at the crusaders with mingled envy and contempt. By September, de Marode's army numbered not less than 15,000 men. Of these, the weakest regiments, with the exception of one or two battalions, were the native subjects of the Pope, enlisted for the sake of the pay, without zeal for the cause, despised by their foreign companions in arms, and conscious that they were traitors to their own country. The foreign troops were, on the average, superior in quality. Six thousand Austrian veterans and several hundreds of Irish recruits were landed, enrolled, and drilled at Ancona. In Rome, there were more Irish, besides French, Belgians, and other nationals. They were essentially crusaders, not mercenaries. The Irish, as was justly observed, 
could have obtained far better terms in the queen's service and had come solely out of religious zeal peasants straight from the soil of ireland they were riotous and difficult to manage but by the influence of their priests rather than by the enforcement of strict military discipline they were at length reduced to order and presented a soldierly appearance in their green uniforms but the troops who attracted most attention in this strange army were the french and belgians of good family who assumed the title of papal zouaves they were the men of the ancient regime strayed into the wrong century who had at last found a cause for which they could fight they involved the whole army in the atmosphere of their own extreme legitimist principles napoleon the third was to them a usurper and a jacobin they proclaimed a royalist restoration was imminent and cheered for henry v of france under the windows of napoleon's officers in rome in all this they were encouraged by the party now supreme at the vatican who spared the emperor no insult de Marod in march had visited france and returned with a kinsman of his own the retired french general le mortiere once a republican now a legitimist and clerical but always openly hostile to the napoleonic empire this man was put in command of the army of crusaders as if to show that the pope no longer valued napoleon's friendship and had no more need for his protection if cavour had been dictating the papal policy by telepathic suggestion he could not have wished for anything better the defenders of the temporal power behaved with light-hearted insolence of some king in ancient greek tragedy whom god has maddened and he may destroy him the invasion of the papal states in september eighteen sixty was the crowning act of cavour's life and the greatest example of his political genius he was hemmed in on all sides and he laid all his enemies at his feet by this one stroke it destroyed the league of reactionary italian powers that threatened the newly formed kingdom in the north it liberated the populations of the centre it garnered garibaldi's harvest in the south it decided the rivalry between himself and the dictator before it could grow into a fatal quarrel it restored the prestige of the monarchy as at once leading and controlling the revolution and made it a united italy stretching without a break from the alps to palermo but proportionate to the possible advantages were the dangers of the course it was a defiance of austria of the whole catholic world and of the whole diplomatic world except england at best napoleon might be persuaded to wink at an invasion of papal territory but he could not fight against austria in defence of the sacrilege because his political supporters his soldiers his ministers his ambassadors and his wife would all be on the side of the pope and if austria chose to attack piedmont alone could not resist her armies on the mincio knowing all this cavour decided to take the risk perhaps no other statesman fully alive to the facts would have dared a venture so hazardous and certainly none would have carried it through with such perfect nerve and skill two men may claim to have advised cavour before the event prince jerome napoleon and ricasoli as early as june thirtieth while garibaldi was still in palermo prince jerome had written urging cavour to break with naples and the pope but to be careful first to take the emperor into his confidence and to explain to him without reserve the true necessities of the italian situation cavour waited for two months 
until garibaldi was at the gates of naples before he followed the prince's advice but he spoke of the invasion of the papal states when it actually took place as the plan of prince napoleon and he gratefully acknowledged jerome's services in keeping his imperial cousin friendly to the italian cause and neutralizing the hostile influence of the empress and the ministers the necessity for action was also impressed upon cavour in a series of vigorous letters from ricasoli tuscany's iron baron whose fortitude and patience had carried through the annexation of his province to the territories of victor emmanuel in july eighteen sixty ricasoli wrote to cavour again and again pointing out an impassioned language that the popularity and the prestige of the monarchy was passing over to garibaldi and the advanced parties who stood behind him and that nothing short of a war of liberation waged in central italy by the piedmontese regular troops could recover for the king moral leadership of the national movement ricasoli never tired of repeating his formula our real garibaldi should be victor emmanuel on the first of august cavour announced his decision to invade the papal states but only in the strictest secrecy to his representatives at london and paris during the whole of the month the world knew nothing of his intention at the end of august napoleon the third was at cambury enjoying the alpine scenery of his new province of savoy recently acquired by the bargain with cavour as the fruits of the italian alliance the place the time his holiday humour the constant news from rome of fresh insults cast upon him by the pope and the crusaders all combined to induce this halter between two opinions to lean for one movement to the liberal side and at one moment in cavour's hands sufficed on august twenty eighth there arrived at cambrai two piedmontese emissaries farini the second man in the cabinet of turin and cialdini the brilliant officer known as the garibaldi of the regular army in a secret conference with napoleon they informed him of cavour's intention to invade umbria and the marches the patrimony of st peter by containing the city of rome was to be left to the pope and the french garrison provided that napoleon would confine his own troops to that province and leave le Morichery with his austrians and his legitimist french crusaders to try conclusions in umbria with cialdini's bersaglieri the emperor wrote cavour approved of it all indeed he seemed to greatly relish the idea of seeing le morichery sent to the piedmontese emissaries reported that napoleon discussed the military chances of the campaign in the most friendly manner laying down the limits of the plan of operations for our army and finally dismissed them with the words fait vite what thou dost do quickly the southward march of the piedmontese battalions could be truthfully represented in either of two aspects liberty or order cavour and his agents in explaining matters to the emperor were careful to lay most stress on the restoration of order as against garibaldi when the interview took place at cambrai the red shirts still in the full career of victory in calabria had not yet received their check on the volturno and napoleon had grave reason to fear that they would soon be knocking at the gates of rome unless cavour interposed the shield of the piedmontese army it was to the interest alike of napoleon and of victor emmanuel that the italian monarchy should absorb the revolution 
before it came up north and involved the whole politics of italy and france in complications that might end on either side of the alps in civil war republican uprising or legitimist restoration not being able to forestall garibaldi at naples wrote cavour to his minister at paris we must stop him elsewhere that is to say in umbria and the marches an insurrection is on the point of breaking out there and as soon as this occurs in the name of order and humanity cialdini enters the marches and fanti enters umbria they pitch la marcherie into the sea occupy ancona but declare rome inviolable the name of humanity was invoked in reference to the brutal conduct of the pope's foreign mercenaries who had repressed the insurrection of perugia the year before with unnecessary slaughter cavour's emissaries represented to napoleon that it was obligatory to invade the papal states in order to prevent a repetition of such horrors on a greater scale an insurrection they declared was inevitable in umbria and the marches and truly enough of the inhabitants of urbino rose and held their hill city for three days before victor emmanuel's troops crossed the frontier to the rescue napoleon in his official version of the cambria interview declared that he had not only promised his acquiescence because farini had undertaken on his side at the piedmontese would only enter the papal states after an insurrection and to re-establish order whatever napoleon really said or tried afterwards to unsay he left no doubt in the mind of the two italians that he would not actively resist the invasion three days later to make assurance doubly sure cavour sent another emissary count arese the old italian friend of napoleon during the period of his connection with the carbonari thirty years before another tried friend of the adventurer now safely seated on the throne of france was dr canal who had aided him in his romantic and perilous escape from the castle of ham in eighteen forty six in the midst of priests and reactionaries and courtiers the emperor entirely forgot arenci and canal in their liberal doctrines which had once been his own these two inmates of napoleon were at this crisis of italian history working in league with cavour arese's instructions were to seek out napoleon and repeat the arguments of cialdini and farini of which cavour sent him the following notes for his guidance describe to him the italian situation after villafranca and nice underhand war continued after villafranca by enlisting of austrians and rome at naples alliance as good as formed between the pope austria and bourbons feeling of danger of this league very strong in all italy after session of nice impossible to hold garibaldi back confess that the government has tolerated and even supported him but it has energetically prevented mazzinian expeditions impossible to allow ourselves to be distracted by the demagogues at naples once annexation made we will try not to attack rome or austria emperor will save italy if he prevents an attack on us before next spring if necessary we will fight alone against austria sure the emperor will not allow the only ally of france to be destroyed by coalition explain that it is not at turin but at paris that we are blamed these arguments prevailed once more and the emperor repeated to arese his undertaking not to defend the marches and umbria with french troops 
the history of these negotiations clearly proves that but for garibaldi's success in the south cavour would have had no chance of obtaining napoleon's passive consent to the invasion of the papal states garibaldi's part in the making of italy was not confined to the geographical area of the regions which he liberated with his own sword for the influence of his victories in eighteen sixty was the ruling fact in the dealings of cavour with napoleon and with all europe to whom he was able to say if you won't take victor emmanuel you may get garibaldi hudson's comment when he heard that the piedmontese were about to invade the papal states was we see now what the garibaldi expedition has produced thus assured from the only quarter whence he could hope to obtain assurance except from england whose approval could be taken for granted without the asking cavour staked the fortunes of his countrymen on the hazard an ultimatum launched at the pope's ministers on september seventh requiring the disbandment of the foreign mercenaries who suffocate in italian blood every expression of the national will was followed up on september eleventh by the invasion of the marches and of umbria and the sailing of persano's fleet from naples for the waters of ancona half the regular army was left on the mincio to protect milan and turin against a blow by the austrians the guard left was all too feeble but cavour trusted that the internal condition of the austrian empire would deter the statesmen of vienna from moving or ruin them if they moved he had already made arrangements with the kossuth and the magyar leaders for a hungarian rising to be armed and financed by italy in case of war between her and austria but his hope was that peace could be preserved with austria until early next year he could face europe with the fait accompli of united italy the news that victor manuel's bersaglieri were marching gaily along the high roads of umbria and of the marches hailed with ecstasies of joy by the inhabitants and taking in the papal fortress at the rate of one a day dispelled in an hour the foolish dreams of de merode and his party now was seen how little confidence they had at heart in the crusaders for whose sake they had thrown away the friendship of napoleon at once the whole tribe turned to the man whom they had been insulting for months past and demanded as a matter of course that he should send the armies of france to save them from the piedmontese the demand of the priests was supported by napoleon's own ambassador in rome the duc de germain and by his foreign minister Thauvenel both of them strong reactionaries and neither of them as yet informed of the promise which he had given at cambrai he yielded to the clamours of the catholic world so far as to break off diplomatic relations with turin and to protest that he opposed cavour's act of aggression but he refused to oppose by force although the papal ministers in their agony added those two little words to the obscure message which de germont had been authorized to give them from his master the priests were accused of deliberate deceit in this matter by the french diplomats but it must be admitted that de germont's oversympathetic personal attitude at the time made it very natural to attach a warlike meaning to the message which otherwise would have no purpose except to save the emperor's face End of chapter ten